Hello, I'm Tom Bartels from GrowFoodWell.com. And I am Darren Parmenter from Colorado State University in La Plata County. We are collectively known worldwide as the Garden Guys. Solving some problems, fixing issues. Usually our own issues that we have to fix. <laughs> yes. But- Irrigation, planting, <laughs> breezes. Oh, I forgot to water. Yeah. Oh. All weeding. The, all the stuff with food production and enjoying food and harvesting yeah. food and weeding and whatnot. I think we are, we're about at that stage, though, Tom, to take on interns. I feel like we're at an almost an intern stage. So To handle all the mistakes? Yes. Yeah, so if any yeah. are my weeding. <laughs> <laughs> well, today, well, last week, we, we went out to a site visit at Beat Street Farms, which was really enjoyable. It was. I appreciate the fact they took the time to, to come talk to us because we could tell just in that short amount of time we were out there that... May and June are busy periods of oh, the yeah. of the year. For Never farmers. have enough time to do all the tasks. So yeah, it was busy, but again, a, a good reminder at what farm production looks like compared to what garden production looks like. Right. The farm out there is legit. It's a big farm. It's huge. But in the scope of things, it's a small scale compared farm. Compared to industrial farm, it's, yeah. it's a spec. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's uh, it's great that they took the time. They're doing really cool stuff. Um, they're a great uh, example of of small-scale farming in southwest Colorado. Done well. Done well. And today, to help other uh, gardeners do well, do you like that segue? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about... Grow food well. No, we're going to talk about answering questions. Yeah, we have a lot of those uh-oh moments. Yeah. And it's typically an uh-oh after they did something. Like, right? <laughs> like, uh-oh, is this right? Is this okay? You know, uh-oh, <laughs> something's not coming up. Yeah. Uh-oh, right? So it... it I would even, you know, I've had uh-oh moments even this year. No, every year you worry, right? Like you're like, okay, my carrots are not coming up. Yeah, what did I, I did do something? wrong? What did I do wrong? Yeah, and sometimes they won't come up. You know, majority of time I I go through the same process every year, and I get something that comes out of the garden that looks like a carrot, and I'm successful. Yeah, and it's okay. And one uh, answer to that, if that were a question about, what do I do if I worry about my blank blank not coming up correctly etc just plant a variety of vegetables because then some of them will work yeah plant what is successful and plant what you like to eat yeah so if i am never successful growing lettuce really for example no that was an example oh i see that was just an example for example i was gonna be surprised like it's lettuce you know it's not that hard well great now that my lettuce isn't coming up tom just gave me a complex (laughs) i'm worried about my lettuce now is it then go straight it, if it doesn't ever come up, right, then then don't grow it. Yeah. You know, there are other people who grow lettuce really well. Um, and right now, if you go to the farmer's market, pretty much everybody's got really good lettuce yeah. because they're able to grow it inside mm-hmm. and, you know, in a hoop house or in a greenhouse, whatever it looks like. So just let someone else do that work that you don't do as well. I like that. Yeah. I don't, I don't work on cars, right? Like, I'm not a mechanic. But man, there are people that are trained and have done this for a long time. Now, are you talking people out of gardening altogether? Because you just go buy the stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why well, grow it? You can go buy it. What, what do you bother? You supplement. Right? Oh, your okay. supplementation Very is good. what we would call it. Yes. Very good. Yeah. Well, supplementing your diet with something like tomatoes fresh from the hothouse that you grow in your backyard is an attractive thing for many people, including a woman who approached me the other day. I'll just call her Elizabeth because... That's, That's her, her name. name. Uh, she uh, <laughs> she has a, a series of pots in her greenhouse, 
In her greenhouse. Yes, they're about two foot diameter by maybe two foot tall. Pretty good sized pots. Okay, like the old tree pots, or yeah, you like can a tree do like pot. a. She's growing tomatoes, which she loves, and she was wondering each year. These are indeterminates. They're vining through November in her greenhouse. Each year, she goes in and takes up the plant and disrupts the soil in that pot and regenerates it with new compost and amendments. Is that okay? Or should she leave the mycelium like a no dig scenario? She was kind of worried about it. And I I put her at ease. I said, it's quite fine to disrupt an annual in a pot and replenish that compost. In fact, it's normal because it's going to be using a lot of those mineral nutrients from the compost to grow these huge indeterminate vines that are covering her greenhouse. This is a great topic, which is container gardening. And that, you know, we give talks on it and um, it's always an interesting. This is a container within a protected system of a greenhouse, which adds a different layer to it. But I, I like container gardening. I like growing above ground because I make use of space on a patio or against a fence that I would another otherwise not have a bed there. But yeah, what do you put in that container to start? What don't you put in there? And then how much can you disturb it, disrupt it, add to it every year? That process, because you're growing above ground. This is a completely different scenario than growing below ground. Sure. So some folks will do completely soilless mixture in a pot, which is typically a a bagged material. Mm -hmm. And that bagged material was cooked or pasteurized at a really high temperature. And then nutrients were added to that. And in most cases, there's some science behind that there's enough nutrients to supply an annual with enough nutrients within one growing season. Some folks will put soil in there, mm-hmm. right? If you have a really, really clay soil and you put it in a container and that container is not big enough, you, that sometimes it's tough for that water to move through that soil profile. So like Elizabeth was doing, you amend it and you amend it heavily with compost or, you know, aged horse manure if you know it's safe or, you know, bagged material of mushroom compost or whatever. And what is. you're getting to basically is organic matter that helps water infiltrate through that soil profile and aeration happens yeah. a little bit more. Uh, so if you have like your clay soil, I go out in Tom's yard late at night. I dig a, a big hole, <laughs> get his clay soil. You have clay soil yeah, out, big here. Clay out here. I put it in a container. I let it dry down because that's what's going to happen. And if I pour water over the top of that, yeah, Tom's making faces. Yeah, like, hey, that's not going to go well. No, it's not going to work well. Right. If you don't see water coming out the bottom holes, you know that that soil is just holding water. It's hydrophobic on yeah, top. It's it going to go off the sheet across, off the top. Yeah. So you have to really amend it. Or yeah. you buy soilless mixture. Mm-hmm. And then that leads to that next up. Can I use reuse my soilless mixture every year? I grew tomatoes in a pot last year. I added two bags of soilless mixture to one pot, let's say, and that's expensive. Sure. Why can't I just use that again? Well, you can, but there may not be any nutrient value in that soil anymore. Right. The tomato used it last year. Right. And so that's good organic matter. So what do you do with all that soilless mixture? Well, maybe you compost it. Compost it. You sure. have a bed that you already Mulch. are growing in and you use it as a soil amendment because it's probably coir or you know, hopefully mm-hmm. less and less peat, you know, or it's perlite. So those things, there's components in there that are probably beneficial for your soil in terms of or, yeah, yeah. organic matter. Yeah. So don't just throw it out like the baby in the bathwater technique. You know, you reuse it if you can in some sort of garden bed, but you may have to amend that bag of soil in a container that next year or that soil with whatever's in there. But like soilless, like bags of soil or soilless mixture are expensive. Yeah. 
And so I can see why container gardening for some folks is pretty cost prohibitive because it's not cheap. Oh, we're going to jump into the next question, which is, would you advise that I adhere to the space requirements that are on the seed packets, or can I get away with tighter spacing to grow more in that space? Tom's answer first, then my answer. I'll plug my ears phone here, Tom's. Okay. Uh, He's in the soundproof booth, and uh, now we're going to just, the audience and myself are going to be talking. Um, I would suggest it depends on the soil. It depends on how much nutrients in the soil, how much it's amended, how deep it is, because those plants... If you put them too too closely together, they're going to compete. If you have compacted soils that aren't amended well with compost and don't have the mineral mineral content and enough food for those plants to calmly feed themselves, because they'll start going out laterally if they hit compacted layers, and they'll start realizing there's not enough nutrients to go to full maturity. That triggers the reflex to just go to seed which is their second option. And so that's pretty common when people just throw a handful of seeds in a very small space. A lot of those plants don't have enough room uh, or enough nutrient um, or moisture feeding right below the roots. So they go lateral and then they compete and they go straight to seed. So uh, if you have really, really good soil, you definitely can get away with smaller spacing than what's on most seed packets uh, because then the the plant can get plenty of its nutrient and water needs uh, sufficiently straight down from the plant without going laterally. So um, we do that in biointensive agriculture quite a bit. We'll have much closer uh, plant spacing. The advantage there is if you can get away with it, you shade out weeds and you can kind of optimize the amount of nutrient density in that square footage. So that's the benefit of doing it. But a lot of people think, oh, I'll just do it on this really shallow clay soil that has really nothing in it and I'll just grow more food. And that's not necessarily the case. Can I take my headphones off now? Hello. Hello. Okay. I can come on out. I'll close okay. the I'll close the door. Okay. Yeah. Got it. There we go. <laughs> Welcome back. Do you remember the question? Something about uh, seed spacing and packets. Yep. Okay. Can you get away with the tighter spacing? Yeah. I mean, I'm always one to maybe push the limits of it, but there's also a fair amount of a uh, a trial and error going on with whoever grew that seed out. That I'm assuming they kind of that's their recommendation, and it's not just based off of, hey, we want to sell more seed, so let's do X, Y, or Z, right? And there's science behind this. So typically that seed spacing is based off of however big that plant can get, that that's a good distance to have between the two. So yes, I tend to follow what's on the seed packet. That said, I push people to get out of this row mentality of gardening, that everything's in a row. Right. So everything doesn't have to be in a row. I'm all about square foot gardening. I'm all about planting on the square or biointensive. So you can do what's what are carrot what's carrot spacing is like two to three inches. Three inches. Right. So three inches, if you do a row of it, that's X number of plants for, you know, a ten foot row. You know, so that's four times ten is Forty. See how fast I can do math there. That was your smoke coming out of your yeah. Ears. I can do in where one square foot, you know, so one by one bed, or a one by one square of a bed, I can grow roughly with a three inch spacing, twenty four plants. Yeah. So on that same spacing, but it's relatively constricted or compacted into one square foot. So I like the idea of planting on a on more of a square mechanism rather than a linear or row mechanism because you can fit more plants that way and i don't you know i don't know if tom mentioned it but yeah you would 
you know, you can outcompete weeds, right? Like you can utilize the amount of irrigation that would otherwise go to waste as you as you water. So it's a different way of growing, but I tend to still roughly go. I don't go. Out, well, I was gonna say I don't go out there with a tape measure, but I do make a <laughs> dibble board that everything was based off of a tape measure measurement. So everything is exactly either two inches or three inches apart. Yeah. So I know that that's my spacing. Now the other side of this extreme would be not. Uh, planting enough density to cover the soil once those plants get to adolescence, say. And so there's a bunch of soil exposed in between rows, which is really bad because that's yep. just going to give weeds an opportunity yep. to fill those beds. And you're going to, that organic matter is lost to the atmosphere in terms of wind or whatever's happening, right? Like, so, you know, you're losing water, you're losing moisture, which then tends to lead to less of organic matter buildup or, or creation. So you have all those constrictions of that single row, lots of open space. I don't like to see open space in any garden. I just don't. It's just I want to see stuff full of calories. Yeah. And by late July, you shouldn't be able to see any soil in your garden. Yeah. Yeah. That's Which it. is a that's a great parameter of yeah. unless it's the row that you're walking on. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the pathway. Yeah. yeah. The, the row you're walking. <laughs> Never walk in your beds. Uh, <laughs> as opposed to what Darren just suggested, please not recommend it for children. under. 12. That's what I was messing up. I was walking, yeah, walking right on the, on the bed. I thought you're supposed to compress the seedlings. I don't uh, know. Yeah. <laughs> They're supposed to be underground. There's moon right. dancing down the row. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're going to jump on to uh, next one is up. Uh, when do you use bean or pea legume inoculant? Now, do you use inoculant? No. You don't at all? No. And so uh, what's happening with your nodules? <laughs> that's, that's kind I of have a, a doctor's appointment question. next week that we're going to have the same discussion. <laughs> I, I knew there was something coming. Um, no, so again, like if I'm growing in ground, yeah, I will actually first check and see if my soil is already inoculated with an inoculum that that legume can interact with yeah so first year if i grow peas or beans i will pull that plant up and look for those nodules so if you don't know what you're looking for look for little white or yellow kind of balls on the roots of the plant and they're going to be adhered to that plant they're Mm -hmm. sticking to the root of that plant right if you squish them they kind of bluish yeah they kind of Pop like a pimple, right? Well, they're anaerobic chambers, actually. So that what's fascinating about this? Well, this is where we're gonna go. Like, oh see? no, this is so cool. <laughs> that, and you, you agree? I know you. The, legumes are magic. They, take, they are. They take airborne nitrogen, bring it in. There's an agreement. I'll create an anaerobic chamber because these bacteria, they're rhizobium bacteria. It's a specific family of bacteria that works with legumes, and they will. They only grow in anaerobic situations so the lack of oxygen and the plant of course is in aerobic in your soil so what it does is create these little chambers on the roots that darren was mentioning called nodules inside those nodules is a liquid and that's where the bacteria Bacteria, is actually living in a liquid environment and that nitrogen comes through the plant that bacteria fixes that nitrogen into a liquid form that is what's inside those nodules at the end of the year when you pull that bean plant up and check it. And that's why you're referring to that. If you check those roots, you're going to either see nodules or right. not. And that's going to tell you, hey, did I have the bacteria in that soil? If it didn't, then there's no nodules. Right. And that's when you would potentially have to then come and inoculate. Right. But yes, I'm assuming do you inoculate your seeds? There? I do. I have certain beds that I know have been inoculated. And how does that process work then, um, if you're inoculated? The easy way is you just, and there are different classifications if you're doing peas versus um, beans. They have a few different classes of 
the rhizobium bacteria, if you look in any garden catalog or the nursery, they'll have some most of the time. And you just say, oh, I'm going to plant peas. Okay, you need some pea inoculant. And it's a very dark, very fine powder. It's in a tiny little bag, probably cost five or ten bucks. And you don't need much. You need like a teaspoon. So the smaller the bag, the better. Right. And uh, you're just going to put your seeds, let's say you have a handful of pea seeds, you're going to put them in a yogurt container, empty of the yogurt, of course. Good idea. Yeah. And just swirl around some water. Get them wet and then drain them right away. Then you dump in your teaspoon of inoculant, roll them around in that kind of wet slurry. Yeah, right. There's not yeah. much liquid okay. in it. So now they're all coated. And those seeds are coated with this living bacteria. And then you can plant away. And you have effectively inoculated that bed because that bacteria right. will spread. So you don't have to pour this powder across your bed. So you okay. just put it right on the seed. It's way easier. And if I grow beans or peas in that same space next year... They're going to have bacteria. It'll have that. Yeah. But if I rotate... I may have to re-inoculate. If I have excess inoculant, can I use it the next year, or is it kind of if a you put it in shelf stable? In, well, it's or unstable. shelf unstable, and so if it's especially if it's out drying in heat, they're going to die off. They need to be in a refrigerator optimally to keep a longer shelf life. And I don't know if they'll last from year to year, but they certainly diminish over okay. the years. So it's something you just want to buy a small quantity. Figure of, out your quantity and fresh. Each year, if you're just starting different beds, but once it's in the soil, it has a much better chance of surviving year to year. Okay, that's a good idea because I um, I have a new bed this year that I need to put beans in, and so that may be the one that you that yeah. I it's, if you inoculate. have new soil coming in and you have a new bed that you just produced, there is resident bacteria out there right. that can possibly be in that bed. It's right. all over the place, but to ensure that. Uh, instead of waiting a year to find out, you can ensure, oh, I'll just put a little powder on those seeds, and now I know there are. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to wait a year because yeah. I already planted my beans. Well, you can I didn't inoculate. You could um, put a slurry and, and pour them right on the beans right now, and that'll get right to the roots, and they can adhere to the roots and start those nodules this year. Okay. Good to know. Um, I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> Anonymous <laughs> that anonymously. This is Bob from Farmington. <laughs> um, so... Another quick tip uh, that I had on somebody that asked questions about what do I do with my empty beds? I'm not going to have time to get all my beds planted this year. How dare you? Should I just leave them open? And my suggestion was to just throw a few cover crops in there and let them go. To A, keep the weeds at bay. Yeah. Feed the soil with more root activity, which keeps everything else alive. And you might get some beauty in that and different canopies, different types of cover crops. You can just use some simple... Cow peas, anything in the legume, of course, because you're fixing nitrogen, you're improving the bed as you're doing other things. It's getting free fertilizer. Uh, marigolds are a great flower to put in there. Um, I'm a fan of buckwheat. You ever grow buckwheat? buckwheat? Yeah, it grows it's super a, fast. It's a fast, warm yeah. season crop. With any of these things, you, cover cropping is a, is a whole different way of growing. And mm-hmm. you got to be sometimes careful, especially if you're going to do some of the legumes of, of clover or vetch that you don't let it go to seed. To full seed, right. Because then you will have vetch in that bed for the rest of that bed's life. Yeah. So letting things, you know, plants as they start to flower, they'll pull up a lot of nutrients into that, into the living growing material. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes that's when you go ahead and you, you, you mow or you kill that crop off and then you reincorporate all that material back into the soil. So you're kind of keeping that the nutrient and the organic matter on site. Um, but just my general rule of thumb is allow, if you let like 10 to, uh, 10 to 20% of that cover crop going to flower, 
that's when you want to weed whack it, mow it, incorporate it, whatever you want to do. Because you don't want to create a seed bank of something that will outcompete the subsequent crop. So what's going on in your garden this week? In Darren's garden this week. In Darren's garden. So I'm fully planted out, right? Like all tomatoes and peppers are in. There's no more frosts. So I, I think we're good. I hope we're good. If not, then the nurseries will hear me calling or Tom may get an email late at night that I need, you know, 20 <laughs> Replace, more tomato replacement plants. Um, everything is planted out. So wow, I've got I'm jealous. carrots and beets are starting to come up. Peas are up. Lettuce is coming up. Um, I've got some broccoli transplants in. I've got lots of kale either coming up or I also did some kale transplants this year, which was new to me. Beans are in. Um, what else we got growing? Cucumbers are in. You got potatoes? Nope. They take up a lot of room. They take a lot of room. Yeah. So I'm, you know, Beth and I were actually talking about this of what we buy at the farmer's market or what we buy here locally and what we can grow. And even getting broccoli in there was she had to convince me for broccoli because it's such a big plant and I just got four by eight beds. Yeah, yeah. That I'm all about like I'm all about carrots and beets uh-huh. and like mass production in a small amount of space. And the broccoli takes like eighteen inches. Yeah, so it's I know. Be a I big hate circle. It. Yes, those yeah. big. And then you basil get a couple leaves. florets and you're like, oh, that's done. That well, you can eat all the leaves; they're really good for you. What pound, pound for pound broccoli leaves are more nutritious than the florets. How do you themselves. eat them? Uh, chop them up and saute them like you would kale. Really? Yeah. Or put them in a blender, use them in a smoothie, or dry them and use them later. They're really good. And the, I actually grow leaf broccoli separately from the broccoli that has the flowers. That's called the, cabbage. Like, what is leaf broccoli? Leaf, it's an Italian leaf broccoli, and it grows like four feet tall, and it has tons of these frilly huh. leaves that are really good. Yeah. It's much like a kale plant. I mean, it's in the same family. So it, it's just... Um, we grow a lot of kale. Like, that is definitely yeah. our... Oh, which is odd for leaf broccoli. Yeah. Well, I'm going to start calling it leaf broccoli and see if like, <laughs> I see Beth shake her head. Like, what are you, what is this? What are you talking broccoli? about? Problems. Um, I only have one problem this week and it relates to the <laughs> and word. And I'm staring at you right the, now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're it. It's one problem and it relates to the word of the week, oddly enough. Okay. So we're combining problems and words of the week. Uh-huh. I like this. Yeah. It Maximizing all, efficiency. It leads to the same des- destination. And yeah. that word and slash problem is. Amendelay. Oh, isn't that like a hotel in Vegas? Uh, it's close. It's a Mandalay Bay. The, the Mandalay Bay, right? So this you're is the Amendelay Lay. Amendelay, just, just one, one, one word. Yeah. And okay. what that is, is, you know, I have my own aspirational goals. I try to grow a lot of food in a small space. I got 22 beds, which is pretty typical for me. It's about 2,000 square feet. And I amend them all by hand and grow up, you know, do all the compost. So I think I moved about 3,000 pounds of compost this year Whoa. by hand and then twist forked it all into the soil for amending that soil. It took me like five days. And it, it's, you know, I've been doing this, this is my 21st year of doing this. And it's amazing to me how I forget conveniently how long it takes to amend soil by hand. And so everything else, like these seedlings that I had here in the office, are now in the garage. They're all hardened off, ready to go. Why don't you have any seedlings in the ground, Tom? Yeah, I Because that. I'm on amend delay because I'm still amending as of the last knot I just finished. So everything else was on delay. So I call it amend delay. Why didn't you amend earlier? Well, I have priority delay, which is in the spring, that's when all the desert rivers come up and we had to go experience some of that during okay, late so April and May. Life actually took precedence yeah, over life garden. Got, you know, when, when April and May, when you should be prepping all your beds and getting ready to get close to the right. last freeze, 
I was out of town paddling, and uh, so now I'm dealing with that. But was, was it worth the Amendele? Um, it's questionable. When it's okay. hot and I'm in the middle of it, I would answer differently than being on the other side. Right. Of it. Well, yeah. fortunately, it hasn't been, at least here in southwest Colorado, it hasn't been. It's been great. It's been nice cloud cover. Yeah. Those passing you know, thunderstorms. It's really like, okay, 80 degrees can, yet. Who knows? I can work so. these beds when it's that cool. So, okay. And the draft horses just weren't working this week? Is that they were we out ran of out of, ran out of carrots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the root cellars. They empty. just started eating the stick. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and here, my other question, and more serious, like, so you said twist, you know, so you're doing twist the, work. your twist forking, which why not use a tiller, even like a walk behind rototiller? A um, couple of reasons. One is tillers always have what's called hard pan that it comes behind, which is especially in clay soils. It compresses and kind of polishes a layer of soil at the bottom reach of the tines of right. that uh, machine. So. When that happens, and then later in the season you get percolation, when soil percolates water, if it hits a different substrate that's more compressed, it'll go sideways. And so right. it won't get deep enough uh, for like a two-foot amended bed, which is typically what I grow in. So you, your plant isn't allowed to go to its full genetic potential straight down with really deep roots. It hits that plow pan and kind of goes sideways. So that's soil, we call it like a soil texture interface. That water says, oh, I'm not... Oh, I'm not even going into that scientific term. Yeah, that's what's that's Master Gardener. Yeah, you know, fact sheet one point six four three six five nine. Yeah, but yeah, I can see why that would be. It'd be easier. It'd be faster for, for sure, and it pulverizes yep. all the soil, which is a detriment. So what I'm doing with a twist fork is just mildly incorporating incorporating that new fresh material, and it's not just the carbon in all this. I'm mixing. Uh, leaf compost and worm castings with traditional bacterial dominated compost. So the two of those going in is it's adding carbon to the soil, which has a million benefits. Plus, and more importantly, in my case, I'm adding trillions of organisms into that dry soil left over from this winter that's now waking up and I'm kind of Feeding it, for feeding sure. it with organisms that are going to explode in activity with that new fresh material and uh, enliven the soil food web. So it's right. kind of jump starting all the beds by doing that. And if you don't get it down in these clay soils, if you don't incorporate it just a few inches down, it tends to just sit on top. Yeah, it doesn't uh, communicate as well with the surrounding soil. Plus those organisms, once they get into the soil and incorporated, are covered by covered from sunlight which keeps more of them alive. And then I percolate, you know, resaturate the bed and it connects those organisms with the soil particles. So that process is then protecting the life of those uh, organisms. When you transport them and stuff, you're gonna lose yeah. you know, millions sure. of them at a time. Yeah, so you try to get them in the loss. soil, get them back to their comfort zone, which is in the dark, in wet soil. We always tell people, and I, can, I agree with the tiller, and I have a, a tiller, it's not a, it's like a battery powered tiller. So I'll tell you like my technique, but when we talk about tillage, people will run over a garden bed with a tiller and be like, Oh, that looks really good. Look how fluffy it is. Yeah. And typically if they do it once, they say, Boy, look what happens when I do it twice <laughs> and like, three times. It's like sand. It gets fluffier and fluffier. <laughs> and for all of us that amend our soils, we do so because we are trying to add that pore space. So we create what we call soil peds or, or these aggregates. And in between all those is the pore space that holds oxygen and water, two valuable components for any plant. So when you till and you overtill, you're completely disintegrating and breaking down everything that you've worked towards by amending that soil. So you're kind of just, it's a completely counteractive process. I've noticed I have new beds that are newish. They're 
eight years old now, I think, with some in, in, imported soil because I kind of live in a gravel pit in here. And so I had to take out all the rock, replace it with soil, and then keep amending that soil right. over the years. Well, my, my resident soil here that I did use in the original 10 beds or so is way clay dominant. And right. so that clay, if I tried to just top dress it like a, a no-till situation, it would be no yep. row. Yep. I mean, it would grow something, but it just gets so compressed. Yeah. Until you, it's at like 10% organic matter now, which is really helping. Um, but in the new soil, it's way more silt dominant and percolates really fast. It's super soft. It never gloms up or compresses. So I may start next year on those eight beds doing low, very low or close to no-till where you just kind of put the amendments right on top of the soil, wet it in, and let it be. And okay. you don't even touch it. So I'm going to do a, an experiment and do one bed of exact same planting there and do a full-on biointensive bed next to it with the clay soil and see is my labor worthwhile do i get an extra yield from that or am i just wasting effort and doing something that's less fun yeah that said that said a lot of these questions that come in do typically revert back to how is your soil doing and that's usually the first place i send people when they're asking questions is Tell us about the soil. It's sort of like you come into counseling. Ask, tell me about your father. <laughs> yeah. It's usually about the mm. soil to begin with. So, Which, And it's hard to understand it because we don't see, it's not an active yeah. thing that we see. It's underground. Yeah. So it's kind of like soil CSI. Yeah. You know, I'll never forget. So, you know, David James at James Ranch here in Durango one time, you know, told me at the end of the day, I'm a soil farmer. Sure. And, that's tr- and he raises, so true. you know, yeah. great pasture grass yeah. and beef. But at the end of the day, it all starts with that soil. And what happens if it all goes bad? You get what you get and you don't throw a fit? That's pretty much Dang it. it. So good. we're going to see you guys next week, and we'll talk about more things food and gardening related. And soil. And soil. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>